This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the NTSB rules on the B-17 crash, and it's a bit of the same old story. And several aviation groups asked the FAA for more clarity on flight training rules. Also, Williams tests some sustainable fuel in its engines. And we're going to find out the latest from the Sun and Fun Aerospace Expo. All right, Dave, you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Jason Hedrick, an Apache pilot and member of a club down yonder your way. That's right. He's a bulldog at the University of Georgia Aviation Club, and he is going to tell us a little bit about military helicopter flying, Cool. how it relates or doesn't relate to fixed-wing GA flying, and how others can get involved in aviation clubs, including the University of Georgia's. Very cool. All right. I like him already. Helicopter pilot. But let's do the news. B-17 crash. Now, we haven't talked about this in a few months, but you may remember back in 2019, unfortunately... A B-17 on a passenger flight owned by the Collins Foundation crashed in Connecticut, and the NTSB just came out with the final ruling. And, well, it's, it is it is a bit of the same old story, we should say. It is, Ian. The NTSB determined that inadequate maintenance and other oversights contributed to the crash. Now, it killed seven people, injured seven others. And part of that was a overlap between the pilot who was the, the basically the chief pilot and also the maintenance officer. But it does boil down to what you refer to as the same old thing, which is you got to point the nose down and keep the landing gear up when you don't have enough power, you know, with you and enough energy to get back to the field. And that's kind of what happened. They landed short and they crashed. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, this actually really surprised me when I first got in flying because I thought, boy, if there's a maintenance problem, it's like, that. gee, that seems like maybe it's, you know, the person maintaining the airplane. But uh, quite often the NTSB will say, and then they did in this case, that yes, okay, there was a maintenance problem and that contributed. But ultimately it was the pilot's inability to manage the problem that caused the accident. And so the pilot really was faulted here right. for even though there was, you know, problems on half of the engines, 
was faulted for not being able to bring it back safely. Yeah. Well, two of the four engines were not operating properly. And, and the, you know, going back a little bit when you're talking about maintenance first is the fact that, you know, if you have a little problem on startup, that really needs to be, obviously it needs to be addressed. They did. They delayed the flight. They poked around a little bit. But going back a few, like about a week and a half earlier, you know, that one of those engines had basically been scrutinized a little bit, but it wasn't, you know, brought back under specs as far as the clearance, you know, on the points, the points yeah. clearance. So if you remember yeah, back the in the day, we used yeah. to work on, yeah, yeah, I have mags yeah. and cars and stuff with points and the clearances and spark plug, you know, gap and all. So it was that basic, you know, the engine wasn't producing enough spark. You know, one of the inches, and then really there wasn't enough power to keep the airplane in the air. And and unfortunately, Mac, the pilot, he lowered the landing gear, and that you know that kind of cuts your glide distance out, you know, pretty severely. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. They you know they apparently did some simulations and found that if he had flown it, I, I don't know exactly properly, but let's say if he had flown it more to the spec, you know, that that he would have made the runway. And and specifically, you had mentioned, you know, it's like maintaining airspeed. And also, yeah, keeping the landing gear up. If he would have delayed putting the landing gear down. Now, we always, of course, are taught you don't put the gear down until the, the landing is assured. But Runway uh, is made. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they did fault him for that, of, of putting the gear down a little bit too early. So um, just a, obviously a tragic accident and, and with far-reaching implications for that community, you know, the ones who, who do these living history tours. Yeah, the the Warbird community, the folks who pay for rides, because you know this is was a lovingly restored airplane, and and by all rights, it had you know had a, had a good history, and and people really enjoyed flying on it. So it's even all the more disconcerting. But yeah, you're right, Ian. The uh, air the airplane basically touched down and hit the approach lights, and that caused it to veer severely across the airfield and it basically you know slammed into buildings and that that's where we had the problem but Ernest Matt McCauley the pilot he was known as a sort of a preeminent b-17 pilot and a lot of folks looked up looked up to him and to his experience yeah that's right so very sad sad accident but you know to be learned from that I would say like you know especially multi-engine it's like you know you got to keep that nose down keep the speed up and and yeah wait to put the gear down so it's it's hard to do it's easy to say and hard to do that's so true in the heat of the moment you've got it right okay moving on we did talk about this a couple weeks ago and that was this this ruling that the court made about flight training and it's going to have really these far-reaching implications and so aop has asked the faa to tell us okay what's up what does this court ruling mean and, and does it change the game on flight training yeah, Ian, AOPA and some other aviation organizations filed what we often retur- refer to as a uh, amicus brief, a friend of the court brief. And basically it points out that we need a little bit further clarification on, on what the FAA is talking about when they're referring to this flight training rule situation, because it goes back again to uh, the Warbird training community and this is where the um the problem originally arose and and the faa sort of defined what they were talking about for flight training and it doesn't quite jive it doesn't mesh with what we have referred to instructors doing when we fly you know it's not the instructor's airplane you know a lot of the times it's a flight school's airplane Mm -hmm. you know we're not paying the instructor to rent the airplane we're not paying the instructor basically to fly the airplane we're paying for the instruction yes yeah and that's an important distinction i mean i know it might sound minor but instructors that's exactly right have been have been known in the past to be charging for their instruction. And, and that has implications for everything from like the medical certificate to potentially drug testing, 
you know, all kinds of far-reaching implications. And so, yes, AOPA has asked the FAA in a letter to, and other organizations, like you say, to tell us, you know, clarify some of this, and including, you know, when are you being paid to compensation for your pilot services and when are you being paid for instruction services? And furthermore, when can you hire an instructor when you own the airplane, which for a lot of experimentals and like you mentioned there, warbirds is very important. Right. Because you have to have recurrency training, uh, not just for safety for yourself, but the insurance requires it a lot of the time, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it goes further than that. But so we, we do want some clarity. Uh, we've asked the FAA to, to think about this again and get back to us, basically. Yes. Look at this. Let's, let's, uh, let's dot the I's, cross the T's, and tell us exactly what you mean. Because a lot of people are confused right now. We just need some further clarity on the matter of instruction. Yeah, very, very true. Moving on, Williams, they uh, make the FJ-44 engine in, in addition to a few others. They have completed a test on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Ian, I'm going I'm to ask you to give us a little bit of a quick dive into this on SAF, which was mm-hmm. just probably going to be a, an abbreviation that we're all going to need to come and, and get familiar with, and the FJ-44 engine, uh, which, uh, which a lot of us know is a Williams engine. But tell us a little bit more about what SAF is and the implications of this testing. Yeah, so SAF is... You know, when it first came out, we called it biofuel, right? And it is a fuel made from jet fuel, made from any number of different sources. I think there's like eight or nine sort of broad categories. It, there are some really cool things that they're doing. I mean, everything from algae, right? So they can take algae and make fuel out of it using crops similar to like ethanol, right? That they put in car gas. They plant these like high, these these crops that are really high in, in lipids and make a fuel out of it. They can take waste. So like recycled cardboard and furniture and all kinds of crazy stuff and make fuel out of it. They've even started in Europe taking, so they, they'll have a, a renewable energy plant, right? So they'll have like a solar facility or wind facility, and they, they take power that they're producing out of there, grab CO2 from the air, mix it with water, and create fuel. They're essentially creating fuel backwards. It's just, it's incredible, the stuff that they're doing. So they they put all this stuff together. And currently they do sell SAF around the world up to a 50% blend. So you can go to California and other places now. And if you fly a turbine engine, you can pump SAF into it. And the reason that they're only doing up to 50% is because it's a really easy drop in replacement. Any turbine engine can take this 50% SAF. Without hurting the engine. Yeah, with no change whatsoever. Uh, okay, so an, an SAF, again, it's Sustainable Aviation Fuel, SAF. Yeah, and so ultimately, of course, it'd be great to get up to 100% because that would make, yeah. you know, it, it would significantly reduce carbon footprint. And so somebody like Williams showing that really engine operated perfectly fine on 100% SAF, that's a big deal. And, and ultimately, I think, can get us to a point where SAF becomes cheaper, more available, and we don't have to rely on uh, traditional petroleum sources for, for jet fuel anymore. And and that jet, that Williams FJ44 jet turbofan jet engine, weighs about 650 pounds or so. It delivers about 3,600 pounds of thrust, and it powers a lot of familiar aircraft that we know of, the Cessna Citation Jet, the Pilatus PC-24, and others. And so that engine has been around for a little while too, Ian. 
Yeah, that's right. It has. So, and they're known as innovators. And so it's not surprising to see them do this test on 100% SAF. So that's, as you can tell, I'm excited about this. I'm writing a story for the magazine right now, and that's partly why. But I think SAF has a very promising future. And it's like, if it's the same price, which it ultimately will be, I think, you know, then I think pilots will adopt it readily because it's like, well, you know, why not? Well, keep us posted on SAF Sustainable Aviation Fuel, Ian, and we'll look to you as the the in-house expert in the near future. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't have an engineering degree, but yeah. Okay, so from SAF to SNF, Sun and Fun happened. It actually happened. People showed up. It did, Ian, and that's good in, in a lot of ways. It actually opened the 2021 aviation air show season down in Lakeland, Florida. And we had a a little bit of a reduced presence there at AOPA, but we wanted to remind folks right off the bat that if you go to our AOPA live channel or just search YouTube for the Sun of Fun playlist, you could see, you know, dozens of actual seminars that we have hosted at the Sun of Fun 2021. And they're there for us to look at and, and review. There's more than a dozen there, as I said, and I wanted to remind people about that as well and also tip our hat to the folks who went down there and stayed safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So not a whole lot of news came out. You know, usually we do a a nice big roundup, but I think, you know, some companies didn't attend and and those that did kind of had a reduced presence. So people still kind of filling the whole thing out. But there was a, a little bit of news that came out of it. One is... I, I think my favorite piece is is this uh, new Bonanza in, in a different trim level. Yeah, it's a real pretty uh, Beechcraft Bonanza, basically decorated in the, I guess, in, in the feel of, of longtime uh, company leader Olive Ann Beach, and it has some throwback graphics on it. It has uh, Olive Ann Beach's some of her favorite colors, so sort of a, a top color, T-A-U-P-E. I hope I pronounced that right. Taup. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and sort of a, a, a very different color blue. Um, and that's going to decorate, uh, you know, one of the new Beechcraft Bonanzas. You can order it that way. So that's a real pretty airplane. Uh, just, you know, those little touches that, of course, that Bonanza will come with that 300 horsepower Continental IO550B engine and mm-hmm. a three blade propeller. Yeah, um, it's it's really nice. The blue, I mean, it's like reminiscent of you know uh, of the '60s, so it's got a nice nice throwback sort of feel. Um, the I don't know, I somebody is going to have a heart attack when I say this, but it it reminds me kind of a Tiffany's blue. I don't know what okay. do you think? It's a little bit different, maybe. I, I think yeah. that'll that'll work, and uh, that's uh, you know, it's just it's an upscale look to me. Uh, I think the colors match really well. Um, I wish I could afford a new Bonanza. That's another thing. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Don't the, we all? But the 75th yeah. anniversary special edition. So that's another thing is basically recognizing the 75th anniversary. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Continuous production. One that's been around a lot less than 75 years is the C-Max. Now, we haven't really mentioned this one before, I don't think. The C-Max M22. This is a uh, a Hall-style Amphib LSA. And the news with that is that there's going to be more composite uh, engineering in that airplane. And the main reason for that, Ian, is, um, as you would know, being a flying seaplanes a little bit yourself, that, you know, corrosion is the the big um, concern. And so instead of uh, having metal components, if you have some more composite components in the wing, it's uh, less corrosion to be concerned with. So I, I think that's some of the bigger news there with that aircraft. Yeah, um, and as as we see with with uh, composites, it, they were able to strengthen the structure a little bit. I think reduce weight. Um, yeah, in fact, they said the new wing is twenty five percent lighter, which is pretty impressive. 
And my favorite part about this is they they made the point about corrosion that you're making by this, you know, everybody's, you know, seaplane dream, which is the airplane beached on a literal beach in this, you know, tropic, clear turquoise water. So um, where everybody wants to be in a seaplane. Absolutely. And then do a little fishing and kind of wander up onto the beach and have a picnic. Absolutely. That's the way to do that. <laughs> yeah. So kind of on the opposite spectrum of that is Alaska, where a story you wrote about the, the Bearhawk four-place getting a little more versatility. So the, the Bearhawk aircraft four-place, and the name of the airplane is the, the number four-place, P-L-A-C-E. Straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Normally it's a it's a you know a STOL short takeoff and landing tail dragger. You know, sort of looks like a a bigger version of a of a Piper Super Cub. Yeah, kind of a Super Cub mall sort of. You know, yeah, if they had a baby exactly. sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's quite a capable aircraft. Now, listen, for it's a kit built airplane. I should mention that right off the bat, and it's about fifty thousand bucks for the basic kit. You know, that's before an engine, interior, anything like that. But the big news that you alluded to is that the kit-built Bearhawk 4-place now is available on floats or on skis in addition to wheels. So Alaska, so the, the, the Bearhawk builder, Robert Taylor, who we mentioned in the story, he built this airplane to what, what he calls his trifecta, you know, to handle a trifecta of conditions. Because of the Kenai Peninsula up there, that you could land on uh, glaciers, there are rivers, there are lakes, you know, there on honestly, there are rainforests and there's tundra and there are some paved strips too. But yeah, yeah. so he changes it <laughs> a few, depending yeah. on the sea, right? Depending on the season, he changes it. And so the Edo 2870 floats are available. Our good friends at Kenmore Air Harbor are able to get them uh, serviced and supported. So we want to remember our folks at Kenmore, they're great folks as well. And it's an interesting airplane. This one has a Cherokee 6 engine on it and the carbureted version. Interesting. The 260 horsepower uh, carbureted version. So it's got the power to lift the airplane. And, yeah, it's relatively efficient, uh, 130 miles an hour at 11 and 12 gallons per hour uh, when the airplane's outfitted with wheels. And of course, it's a little bit less than that when you have the large expanse of the floats on it. Yeah, very nice. Cool. I'd love to fly that. So, David, not a ton of news coming out of Sun and Fun, like we said. I think it's great that it even happened. You know, a lot of people were very excited. Not every show is, is going to continue this year. And one of those that we just heard about is actually Aero Friedrichshafen over in Germany. They have decided to cancel, which I, I think is, uh, you know, not surprising given the, the COVID situation in Europe. So, you know, I think uh, we're going to slowly work our way back here. I like the way you pronounce Aero. I just, I'll just call it Aero. <laughs> Arrow, yeah, <laughs> but but now it was delayed. It was delayed. It was supposed to happen. Uh, basically, you know, the 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 news was that it was supposed to happen in April, delayed to the summer, and now it won't happen this year. So it'll be the second year in a row that Arrow has basically been canceled because of the COVID nineteen pandemic worldwide. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So. Yeah, stay tuned on some of these announcements this year because it, it is, I think, up in the air for a lot of shows. So speaking of up in the air. Yeah. A helicopter flying. I wanna I wanna hear about it. Ready to, to bring on Jason. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Jason Hedrick. 
and you're talking to me today from Athens, Georgia, from the beautiful University of Georgia campus. I'm going to let our longtime Hangar Talk listeners know that you are a former Boeing AH-64 Apache helicopter pilot. You're also a general aviation fixed-wing pilot. You're in a management program at UGA, and we're going to find out a little bit more about the UGA Aviation Club and how others can either join in at Georgia or start their own. So you have the floor now, Jason. Welcome to Hangar Talk. Yeah, no, David, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really honored to get to be on this podcast. Uh, Just a little bit about my aviation background. I graduated from the University of San Francisco in 2012, was doing Army ROTC, and was fortunate enough to branch into Army Aviation. I spent about a year and a half at flight school, uh, the Army Flight School down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. And when I graduated from there, I was a second lieutenant in the Army, and I was an Apache pilot flying the Delta model Apache at that time. From there, I was sent to Fort Campbell, Kentucky in the 101st Airborne Division. And I spent pretty much my entire career there at Fort Campbell. And then I exited the military uh, this past summer in 2020. And on my way out of the Army, I kind of realized that aviation was going to go away in my life unless I learned to fly something besides the Apache, because there's not a lot of uh, Apache flying opportunities outside of the Army. So I uh, took some time and I decided to get my private pilot license for aircraft single engine land. And that's kind of led me to where I am now as an MBA student at the University of Georgia and a participant in the aviation club here on campus. That's a good roundup, Jason. And listen, I appreciate you drawing that parallel between the Apache and GA flying. The Apache, you know, I looked that up online and you're right. Uh, first of all, unless you're in the military, you're not going to be able to fly one of those bad boys. Now I looked up some of the stats on that and it is pretty amazing. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, let's, let's compare and contrast that with uh, the fixed wing. Did you tell me offline that you learned to fly? Was it in a Cessna? Yeah, I started out in a Cessna 150, did my first maybe three or four flights in that. And then I moved up to a 172 uh, purely for comfort uh, reasons. That and my flight instructor was also another kind of big guy. And I think the two of us in a 150, we could maybe hold 11 gallons of gas. So we definitely need to get something a little more powerful. So yeah, I went from the 150 and then finished up my private pilot license flying Cessna 172s. So we have a lot in common. I, um, I'm in a Cessna 152 Aerobat club here in Maryland, and it's a great little airplane. But you're right. You have to be real careful about weight and balance. And uh, with two people, eh, you know, two people, we, I figured out on our airplane, it's about 16 gallons that we can carry between us, which is not bad for a lot of training. But let's contrast that with the Apache. All right, so the Cessna 150, for instance, if I'm going 100 miles an hour, I think I'm doing pretty good. We got a climb prop on that airplane. You're looking at 150 knots in that Apache, right? And we're, we're yeah, talking I mean, about. Yeah, you know, I think when you pick the thing up from the factory and you don't have a bunch of rockets and missiles and some add on equipment, I, I picked up a couple of new Echo Model Apaches from the Boeing factory out in Arizona. And when they came right out of the factory with none of the add-ons, we are probably cruising at 150 pretty comfortably. Once you start strapping, you know, some missiles, some rockets, some add-on equipment, I think a comfortable cruise, if I was going to do a cross-country flight, would be a little closer to 120 knots. Well, that's actually closer to a 172. So now we got a comparison. But a 172 doesn't climb it like, you know, 2,800 feet a minute. 
Like yeah, I mean, the Apache performance is, you know, drastically better. It's got two nearly 2,000 horsepower turbine engines. So it obviously has a lot more performance, but being a helicopter, a lot more of that performance is also curtailed towards the mission set. So being able to hover a little more maneuverability, I think if you're just going from point A to point B, you fly an airplane, and that's why the airlines all operate airplanes and not helicopters. If you're trying to do a little more unique tactical of a mission set, you probably need a helicopter. So now when you got out of the military and were thinking about your future, why didn't you decide to, you know, maybe fly more helicopters? You know, there's a few reasons for that. A, helicopter jobs, they're kind of a tough path outside of the military. The hour requirements are huge for any of these jobs. So when I left the army, I had maybe 13, 1400 hours And there is a huge percentage of helicopter jobs that I'm not even eligible for. Even with, even with 1400 hours of in the military. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that, you got to realize the global war on terror, 9-11 happened almost 20 years ago. So there's been 20 years of military pilots who've been deploying over and over, you know, to the Middle East. And a lot of people that I worked with who'd been in the army longer than me, they had thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. So 1300 is kind of a drop in the bucket in some regards. Okay. So even like working for a TV station or, you know, NASCAR, they, they broadcast the NASCAR races with a helicopter crew based out of North Carolina. I was just thinking what options might there be out there for helicopter pilots with experience? You know, I looked into helicopter pilot jobs a little, not enough to go into these specific opportunities. But I do know that the first few jobs I looked at, the ones that interested me, just the hour requirements were way beyond what I had or what I was willing to build to. And then the second reason for me is I loved being a pilot, but I think anyone who hasn't flown professionally, once you start flying professionally, it goes from just recreation to now it's your job. It's your nine to five. So it might not have been a fun. When I look back on my time flying helicopters, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia and it was a lot of fun, but, you know, chatting with my wife, there were so many days where I came home and I'd say, I hate flying. I'm sick of flying. We've done so much flying. And, you know, some (laughs) of the people I used to work with. So it is really easy for it to go from, you know, it's all fun and games until you've been doing it every day for, you know, eight years and it changes a little. So I think I was ready for a change of pace. I didn't want to completely leave aviation, but I also didn't want to be flying, you know, a helicopter and airplane for, you know, eight hours a day. Understood. Now, when you were flying for the military, you actually were involved in some very key situations. And I want to just look real quickly to see, you know, what might be in your background. I looked, uh, looked at your LinkedIn profile, that kind of thing snooped around a little bit. Now, I think you and I were both working after Hurricane Maria. We were working on relief efforts. I was on the GA side and it looked like you were on the military side. So tell us a little bit more about that. And, you know, specifically thinking about the strategy that was involved and the folks that you were helping out, you know, sort of the mission parameters. Yeah, definitely. So the first thing I'll tell you is Apaches are not very useful when it comes to hurricane relief efforts. So my involvement uh, with Hurricane Maria wasn't on the flying side. So I was in the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell, and we deployed a group of medevac helicopter pilots out there. So they have uh, Black Hawk helicopters that are specially suited with some medical equipment and people who are trained for that kind of mission. So as an Apache pilot, not a lot of flying work for me to do. So I worked in what was called the operations cell. And basically we did all the planning and collaboration 
to get them out the door and over to Puerto Rico. And then once they were in Puerto Rico, we were, we stayed in the States and just collaborated with other agencies like the Air Force or other parts of the federal government to make sure they were getting the support they needed to do their mission over there, which was primarily picking up patients from hospitals that had lost power and suffered other damage and bringing them out to uh, hospital ships or other hospital facilities. So a lot of logistics support and a lot of management support there. Yes, absolutely, David. And so, so Jason, so one thing we can kind of relate to now is that you are at University of Georgia at the Terry College of Business, and you're looking at a management career of some type as well. So putting you on the spot, but did some of that logistics kind of tweak your interest in management overall, you know, for the future? Yeah, definitely did. You know, I loved all the flying that I did in the army, but there was also a lot of kind of joy and satisfaction that came out of watching a plan come together. So I think a lot of times, you know, it'd be a lot of late nights, you know, working together with the team, trying to get to plan together and it'd get a little rough for a while, but once it actually came together and you saw them out there executing your plan, it was pretty awesome. And especially for those guys out in Puerto Rico, I mean, just the work they were doing and some of the pictures they were sending back. And I mean, they were out there saving real American lives and we had a very small part to do with it, but it was pretty awesome to see that kind of playing out. Yeah. And on my side of the thing uh, of that hurricane, which was a, a terrible tragedy for Puerto Rico, but I'd actually participated in uh, hurricane Irma, which is another hurricane. We did some relief flights down in Florida and as soon as we landed in some GA airplanes, you know, the uh, first responders came up and met us and we delivered chainsaws and, and fuel and stuff. And they were happy to have it. And a lot of folks who haven't participated in, in any kind of a relief effort like that don't don't quite understand that, you know, anything and everything is really helpful. And that's where GA pilots and military pilots really shine. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when they're put in a situation like that, I think a lot of us haven't had to live through that, but they need basic necessities like fuel, water, maybe even life-saving medical equipment. And the fact that you can come in and you might not think your Cessna is that useful, but your Cessna all of a sudden can become incredibly useful to someone who hasn't had, you know, water or medical supplies in days or weeks. Absolutely. And, you know, pilots like to give back. So that that's a cool thing, too. Now, let's take it back to the GA world a little bit. You said you got your certificate when you were in Tennessee. Now, you're in Georgia now and uh, very close to Ben Epps Field, uh, which has a lot of history in Georgia. Are you able to do any flying while you're there at UGA or is it just all books and, and no playtime? You know, I've actually been able to get a bit of flying in and the Aviation Club, which we can get to later, has been a big help in that. But last semester, which was my first semester here in Athens, I mostly just did some general aviation flying, renting some 172s, and really took the time to kind of share general aviation with some friends and family. So I've taken my wife flying several times, taken her, you know, for some aerial tour of Athens. I've also gotten to take some of my classmates out and do some uh, just touring around Athens. And it's great. You know, it keeps me sharp, gives me an excuse to go fly, and then I get to share it with other people especially people, you know, who've never been in a smaller GA aircraft before. So that's been great. And fast forward now to kind of present time with the start of this semester, I've had a little more manageable schedule and I've actually started my instrument rating. So I'm instrument rated in helicopters, not in airplanes yet. So I'm working on my instrument rating as we speak. And I'm actually flying with a CF I out of the aviation club. So he's an undergrad student at the University of Georgia. His name's Luke. He's 19 years old, so that's a little interesting because uh -huh. I started flying 
when he was like 11 years old, uh-huh. but he's been a fantastic instructor. He started flying at a young age. His dad's a C-130 pilot in the Air National Guard. So he's, you know, pretty involved in aviation. And I met him through the club and kind of just explained like, hey, I, I need to do this training at some point and got to know him. And he seemed like a good guy and he's been a fantastic instructor. So or instructor, excuse me. And I think the lesson there is kind of like, don't judge a book by its cover. It'd be real easy for me to dismiss him. Oh, this kid's 19. What does he know? But I've learned a ton flying with him every time we go out. You what? Yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity. I'm a, also a long time instrument student and I hope to, to get that written done this uh, spring and then, you know, follow with my practical test sometime over the summer. But tell us a little bit now about the Aviation Club at UGA, because I think other folks would be interested in knowing a little bit about how folks help each other out. You mentioned Luke was a, a is a CFII, and he reached out to you to get you some instrument training going. What are some other advantages for being in the club? You know, I'll, I'll kind of just give you a little overview of the club at first. I think throughout UGA's time, there's been a lot of starts and stops to the Aviation Club, but the most recent iteration can trace its roots back to about 2009. And it'd be just a few people sitting around a table talking about planes. And they've pretty drastically grown the club since then. So we're up to about 50 dues paying members. And I was collecting some data before we did this discussion. And something that I found really interesting of these 50 dues paying members, 35 of them are somewhere between student pilot and CFII. There are 14 private pilots three CFIs, or excuse me, three CFIs and one CFI. And there's two more who are going to be CFIs within the next month. They're already commercial pilots. They have their check rides booked and, you know, knocked up, knock on wood, fingers crossed, they'll be CFIs here in the next week. So there is just a ton of aviation experience in this club, way more than I ever expected when I joined. They are serious aviators, Jason. If you're looking at several who are going to become CFIs, CFIIs in the near future. That is pretty cool. And that, you know, that's a really good mentor situation for folks who are just starting out in aviation. Oh yeah, no, it's been fantastic. They do an amazing job with this club. You know, I'll tell you when I first joined, my expectation was maybe it's a bunch of kids who are into flight simulator and video games. Like I, I didn't really know what to expect. I wasn't involved in aviation at all as an undergrad. And to be honest, when I was 19, I was nowhere near mature enough to be a CFI. And from the moment I joined this club, you know, at the very first meeting, they kind of went around and everyone introduced themselves and their aviation experience. And it's all these, you know, I call them kids, but they're, you know, young adults in college and they're standing up and, Hey, I'm 20. I'm a CFI. Hey, I'm 19. I have my commercial. I'm, you know, whatever. And I have my private pilot. I was blown away. Uh, by the amount of aviation experience they had. And now that I've spent some time in this club, how professionally ran this organization is with the amount of experience they have, every event they do has just been fantastic. And I think I relate that back to, I think flying is a very maturing experience. You know, when you're a student pilot and then you're getting your private pilot's license, it's a pretty big deal to say you're going to take someone up in an aircraft and be responsible for their safety no matter what kind of emergency situation comes up. And I think that maturing experience that flying is really pans out in the personalities that have developed in this club. Yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity for folks to join the club and find out more about aviation and for others to pull people along, you know, a little bit on their coattails, like like in 
honestly, it's a little bit about, you know, what you're doing right now with your instrument training. But on the other side, you have some helicopter background that might be interesting for some discussions if the club has some informal gatherings and you're just talking about aviation and maybe some of that transfers over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually here at the University of Georgia with another friend who I met in the Army. So we're both Apache pilots together. We uh, deployed to Afghanistan together. And now we're both in the MBA program. And he's a CFII flying R-44s locally. So the two of us put on a presentation about a month ago, kind of talking about a little bit of our military time. And then I pivoted towards my future plans with aviation. And then he got to talk about, you know, his CFI in this civilian helicopter experience. And I think it was a really good event. We got good feedback. So I bet it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'd be very interested in myself. Listen uh, to putting you on the spot real quick. Are you thinking at all about any kind of an aviation management track in the future? Absolutely. When I came into business school, I was all about getting into the business side of aviation. So whether that was the airlines or whether that was one of the big manufacturers like a Boeing or a GE aviation, and then COVID hit. And, you know, that career path, a lot of the recruiting shut down. And your first year in MBA school, the big thing you're working on is just getting a summer internship lined up. And I struck out hard with everything aviation related. And, you know, it makes sense. You know, the industry is going through a lot of pain right now. So fortunately, I was able to get another internship. So I'll be taking care of the summer doing some pretty interesting work. But yeah, I'm extremely interested in the business side of aviation. I just think my timing was a little off. I think you're going to be in good shape. You and I, we met uh, on the phone last week. We'll let our listeners know. But I want you to also keep in the back of your mind that you do have some resources with you. One of our partners at AOPA is jsfirm.com. And you could check out you know, what they have to offer as a job seeker, which is free. There's no charge to join as a job seeker. And I actually put my my info out there just to see how things were. And we had Abby Hutter, basically their executive director on Hangar Talk before, and she was a great guest. And it's actually very bullish on jobs in the aviation industry now and into the future. So we have a lot of professional career folks thinking that aviation is, in fact, on a comeback. And uh, even right now, as we speak while we're recording this. So keep that in mind for the future. And uh, another one of our guests was um, was Lewis Smith of the Future and Active Pilot Advisors, which is more of a professional organization for pilots or people who are switching jobs. So I'll give you the hookup with that when we're all done with our with our hangar talk now. But what kind of management were you looking at with your aviation background? What what could you see yourself doing? You know. <clears throat> Excuse me, Dave. In many ways, I'm still, uh, you know, 30 year old kid trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. But, you know, coming into business school, it's a good chance to get exposed to a lot of different corporate functions that you might not know or understand when you're leaving the military. So I think the buzzword when you're leaving the military is you think, oh, operations, operations, operations. Uh, but coming into business school, a few other topics I found really interesting. I think marketing is fantastic. I loved my marketing class. I think it's very interesting. I plan on pursuing some studies there more. And I think the marketing options that are within the aviation industry are quite in interesting, whether you're looking at, you know, the airlines selling to consumers, that's a little more straightforward, what you might think of for marketing. But then if you look to someone like maybe a Textron who's selling GA aircraft, 
GA aircraft up through military aircraft, you know, that marketing team and that marketing strategy is going to look a lot different. I think there's some really interesting and cool things that can be done in that space. That's a great opportunity. And, you know, Textron, Textron Bell, the Bell helicopter, you know, part of Textron, you know, they just brought the 505 Jet Ranger X to the market. And there's some also, uh, you know, they're making big headway with their heavy lift. It's a, a 525 helicopter. It's a 16 passenger job that, you know, will come online soon. So you're right. Things like that, that kind of marketing, you know, how do we let other people know that these models are available and, and someone's got to write the, the advertisements, you know, someone's got to be at the air shows, someone's got to be at the conventions and things like that. So you're right. It, it goes pretty deep in the management sector. If you're thinking about management, you can think about marketing, you think about meeting people, you can actually think about sales. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think sales and marketing are extremely tied and especially to something, you know, aviation is not just the same as selling a consumer good to someone. You're not just selling, you know, a can of soda to someone. You're kind of selling a lot more of a comprehensive product. So you're going to sell an airplane. There's probably going to be some service involved. It's a pretty big capital expenditure. If you're a business buying a big jet, you know, you're not buying dozens of these things. You're buying one and that relationship's incredibly important. So I think there's a lot of room for like high quality, uh, like management type functions within that. And, you know, I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about that as I progress through business school and just continue to reach out and meet people in the aviation community. So it sounds a little bit more like a liaison, you know, like you want to make a business relationship uh, introduction, but then you want to make it last. You want to be that representative and you want to be, you know, real personable. And if someone has an issue, they, you know, they would like a go-to person. So I never thought of that. That is very cool insight. Yeah, no, I mean, I've learned so much about it. You know, I think the army was a great experience, but things in the army work so much in a certain way and coming out to business school and just getting the opportunity to meet people across business, across, across aviation has just been an eye-opening experience about how many different options and types of business are out there. Things that a year ago when I was still in the army, I had no idea about. Understood. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. You talked about something I want to follow up on, and that was that you love sharing aviation with friends and family. You said you were able to do that a little bit this semester, you know, now that your schedule has settled down a little bit. That seems like a pretty good way to get other folks involved in aviation. Tell me about that, what your experience has been with taking friends and with taking family up. Yeah, so I've had a couple of great experiences to do that. Right after I got my private pilot license, I'd actually just purchased a house in Athens, Georgia, and we'd done the whole thing virtually because of COVID. So I'd never even seen this thing. And so I planned a cross-country trip uh, from Nashville, Tennessee, down to Athens, Georgia, a little over 200 miles uh, one way. And I took my brother-in-law from Nashville. He'd never been in a small airplane before. So I picked him up just outside of Nashville and we flew down to Athens for the day, got lunch, met a friend, checked out the house and flew back. And I mean, that was an awesome experience for both of us. And I'd done, you know, dozens and dozens of cross countries in my time in the army, but it was always in a 18,000 pound dual engine aircraft. It was never, you know, kind of me alone and unafraid in a Cessna. So I think it was a good growing experience for me. And it was a great chance for me to share aviation with my brother-in-law and give him that kind of experience. 
And then I've also gotten to fly my wife a few times. I think the biggest trip we flew from around the Nashville area down to Huntsville, which wasn't very far, but it was just great to get to take her, be part of that experience. And I like to talk through things while we're flying. So as I'm starting the airplane, you know, I'll explain what the checklist items are. As I'm playing with the radio or the GPS, I'll be kind of teaching her some of the functions. And she's really kind of taken to being my quote unquote co-pilot and has really learned to kind of help me out in the cockpit, whether that's helping me out with dealing with my tablet, dealing with the Garmin 430, or just some of the other kind of general button pushing that goes on when you're flying. And I think when you get people a little involved with just even some really basic functions, swapping a radio, turning the transponder to a new code, I think it really immerses them in that, in that experience so much more and really opens up aviation to them. So they get more involved. They have a job. Actually, you know, let's think about it. It's cockpit resource management. So that's a skill you probably learned, you know, during your military days. So it's, it's huge in the commercial world. And, you know, anything that we could uh, do to lighten our loads, I think is a better deal. It's, it's helpful for safety as well. And like you said, it gets folks like your wife or, or other family members involved in aviation. So let me explain to our listeners who are not from the South the trip that you took from Nashville to Athens, folks, uh, you do have to cross some mountains when you go from Nashville to uh, to the foothills of Georgia. And some of those mountains are pretty darn scary looking when you're in a, a 172. Now, it is the Appalachians. They're not as high as the Rockies, but there are not a whole lot of choices to land sometimes, you know, and you really have to plan this out, right? No, you definitely do. And I think one interesting thing when you do the transition from helicopters to airplanes is I'm used to flying a lot lower and I really had to break my fear of heights. So there were a few times where I was trying to fly an airplane like it was a helicopter. So I'm at like 500 feet AGL, which is not safe, <laughs> it's not ideal. So I went out with the CFI who was a good friend of mine. We'd, we'd actually been in the army together. He'd gotten out and I said, Josh, I need you to break my fear of heights. So I know we're only flying, you know, 20 miles away, but we're going to climb to 8,000 feet or something like that. And we just went out and did that a few times. And I, and I know in my head, it's so much safer in an airplane to be up high like that, but it really just took some forcing on my end to be like, okay, this is now where I fly an aircraft at. So I thought that was kind of interesting part of my flight training experience. <laughs> it was the opposite of what folks who learn to fly in a fixed wing probably experienced, you know, that we normally want to we actually want to fly high. You know, I mean, I think you get a little bit better gliding distance. Things feel safer as long as you can fly high and avoid the clouds. Now in the Southeast, uh, it's typical three to 5,000 feet. You had a lot of puffy clouds in the summertime. So that's a whole another thing, but yeah, a little bit of altitude. So you wanted to fly 172 down at around 500 feet or so uh, up and down through the valleys. That would be scary to me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's less than ideal. And I knew I was putting myself in the aircraft in a bad situation. And that's why I said, hey, I got to force myself to start flying higher. And luckily, I've been able to break myself of that fear of heights, quote unquote. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a little interesting to overcome that. Well, I'm going to take you back to the helicopter world for a brief second. I was just thinking about this myself because I've only got about three hours of helicopter training. But tell me a little bit about the auto rotation skill. That's something that that seems to be a pretty darn hard thing to get across to folks. And if you could just walk us through that a little bit, if you don't mind, that would be very helpful, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. You know, it's been about a year since I've flown a helicopter, so I'll try not to embarrass myself or Army Aviation. But an auto rotation is the procedure you do if you have an engine failure in a helicopter. So just like for those listeners who've flown, you know, a Cessna or another small 
aircraft. If you have an engine failure, you know that's an immediate emergency reaction. So normally in your left hand, you have this thing called a collective that you pull up or down on. And to simplify it, people jokingly refer to it as the up-down stick, but it's basically going to help you control whether the aircraft's going up or down. You need to immediately push that all the way to the bottom. If you don't, what happens is the rotor will slow down to the point where the aircraft's just falling and you have no way to save it at that point. So at this point, you basically establish a glide and every aircraft has a different glide or autorotative capability. Uh, so when I was training in the Bell 206, the Army called it the TH-67, I think it was somewhere around 60 knots. So you're basically storing energy in the rotor system until you get closer to the ground. And then you're going to use that stored energy in the rotor system to cushion your landing to the ground and provide for a softer landing. In a Bell 206, when I was in flight school, we would do uh, touchdown auto rotations all the time. It was part of the training and it was a required maneuver for us to pass. We had skids with skid pads on the bottom and we'd do them to runways. With the Apache, you could damage the aircraft, so we wouldn't actually do them to the ground. So you would bring the aircraft to a hover, but we'd do similar type training. That makes sense. And, you know, the other thing about the, um, the Apache is that, and you, you, we glossed over it pretty quickly, but that, that has two engines, that two turbine engines. So not just one, but two. Um, but, yeah, thank you for explaining uh, the use of the, of the collective. And also, it, it seems like it's the same kind of concept when you're flying a fixed-wing airplane. You don't want to pull back on the yoke. You want to push forward. If you're, in, you're headed to a stall situation, you want to get more airflow over those wings, just like you want to get more airflow over those rotor blades and use that energy, right? So that seems to be like a parallel with fixed wing aircraft. Yeah, you summed it up great. And I think the parallel and the procedure too, you know, they're going to be different mechanical motions that you're doing with your hands, but the same kind of aviate, navigate, communicate principles apply, whether you have engine failure in a helicopter or engine failure in an airplane. And I think that's one thing the Army really beat emergency procedures into us as a pilot. And I think that was a great carryover when I started my general aviation training that I knew how to remain calm when that instructor said, hey, simulated engine failure. I knew I was able to not panic, not stress. I just know what the procedure is, go to the airspeed, keep the aircraft level, and then go from there. Now, you didn't have any engine failures, I'm hoping, when you were uh, training at either at Fort Rucker or elsewhere, right? No, no. The engine's incredibly reliable in that aircraft. Cannot speak more highly of those things. Not once did I have an engine failure. So very fortunate of that. And, you know, I guess they make a great engine, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, before we close, and I, I want to say again, thank you, Jason, for joining us and also for telling folks about the University of Georgia's Aviation Club. And, and I'm assuming that other universities like Auburn and North Dakota and some of the bigger ones, they all have flying clubs. And it's probably a, a good way to, uh, to get other folks involved in aviation, but to, to check on that. Even schools like at Georgia, which is not an aviation school, you have a flying club. And I hate to, hate to bring it up, but your cross-state cross rivals at Georgia Tech, they have a flying club too. They do pretty good with that as well. But what's one way someone could maybe reach out to think about either joining the UGA um, Aviation Club or establishing their own? Yeah, you know, I think if you're trying to find an aviation club, you can do what I did. And I just started with Google. I typed in UGA Aviation and this club came up and, you know, they have a great social media presence. So if you're starting or you have your own club, make sure you're out there. So we have an Instagram, UGA Aviation Club. We have a website, UGAAviationClub.com. 
We're also on Facebook. You can probably guess UGA Aviation Club. <laughs> so I think just having a presence that's easy for people to find, because I don't know if I would have found them if it wasn't for their online presence. Um, <clears throat> but I think just having those options for people to reach out and to start, uh, you know, becoming a member in your club is great. And I think the biggest thing you can do if you're starting your own aviation club, you know, and whether you're at a school that has a ton of support for aviation or a school where maybe not so much, is just making aviation approachable and friendly. And I think the first point with that is not everyone has to be a pilot to enjoy aviation. You know, there's a lot of pilots in our club and a lot of people trying to be pilots, but there's a lot of people involved who just like being around aviation. They like going on the tours of the aircraft, going airplane watching in Atlanta, hearing the different guest speakers. So there's a lot of different ways to be involved in aviation. And the second thing I'd say is communicate. Pilots, especially military pilots, use way too many acronyms. We speak in a language that your average person can't understand, and that doesn't make aviation approachable or friendly for those people. So I think a big thing that you can do is when you're telling people stories or talking about aviation, just translate it into normal language. Take the acronyms out, explain it in terms they can understand. They might not know what a Garmin 430 is. Tell them, hey, the GPS and the aircraft that we use to navigate around, you know, just make it easy for them to be a part of it. Make it approachable, make it easy, keep it simple, you know, make it fun. And like, I just took a quick look at the Instagram site on, on the, the UVA, UGA Aviation Club, and it looks like there are some bulldog events. There are some uh, pizza nights at the Mellow Mushroom, one of my favorite places to go in Atlanta and in Athens. I was the visual director at the Athens Banner Herald newspaper for a while. You probably didn't know that. But, no, uh, I didn't. They <laughs> Let me tell you a little about their events. So some events we did last semester, we did a six aircraft flyout to Knoxville, which again is impressive that a group of undergrad kids, they put together this flyout to Knoxville with six aircraft. And, you know, that's no joke flight over there, too, with some pretty big mountains. Uh, we also did a fly in with, you know, our crosstown rivals, Georgia Tech. They have a huge aviation club. So they hosted us for a fly in. And then this semester, we're actually hosting our first fly in at the Athens airport. It'll be uh, April 24th at the Athens airport, and we're actually raising money to start our first annual scholarship. And uh, this scholarship is designed to put a new UGA uh, student through private pilot training. So we've been doing a lot of fundraising for that. So we have a cornhole tournament. We're collecting donations for a silent auction. There's going to be food. And I think it's just going to be a really great event. And it really speaks to the selfless nature of the people who are running this club. You know, it's not just a resume builder for them. They take their mission of making aviation more accessible to UGA students very seriously. And they're pretty serious about this scholarship and, you know, getting someone new introduced to aviation who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity. Well, the Bulldog Aviation Club, the University of Georgia Aviation Club scholarship, and we got spot news here on Hangar Talk. We got a new scholarship that is hoped to be established pretty soon. Uh, sounds like you have a nice fly-in scheduled for April 24th at Ben Epps Field, which is for folks who are not Georgians. I mean, this is like the uh, first family of aviation in Georgia, and, and the airfield happens to be uh, named after the Epps and, uh, of course, uh, Epps Aviation at Peachtree Cab Airport is close to my heart because that's where I learned to fly at, at PDK Airport. And um, it sounds like there's some great opportunities there at the Aviation Club for folks from Athens and elsewhere. And I want to find out a little bit more about this scholarship. When that, when that gets funded, will you make sure to give me a call? Let me know what's up with that. Yeah, no, I'll definitely keep you in the loop on the scholarship and how it's going. 
And you know, David, if, if I could, there's two more things I wanted to talk to you about briefly. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so, so the first one I kind of wanted to talk about was kind of some of my experience with AOPA and how it was really helpful when I started getting into general aviation. So when I started doing my private pilot training, I immediately signed up for AOPA and got the magazine because I was just like, you know, I might know a lot about military aviation. I don't know the first thing about general aviation. I could maybe identify a Cessna and that was about it. And other than that, I knew nothing. So I started getting the podcast or getting the magazine, listening to the podcast. And there's a couple resources that I thought were amazing. A, the There I Was podcast. That's I great. think that one's actually saving lives. I it's listened great. to it. Yeah. I learned something new all the time. And I wish there'd be a way to you know run the numbers and see how many pilots maybe were saved by that podcast. But I listen to it every time and learn something new. And that's been fantastic. And then the, the other resource I found that was great is I was reading the magazine one day and there was an article about uh, different aviation resources that are out there online. And I joined the Greg Brown student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. And that was incredibly helpful when I was going through flight training to just have a place where I could post questions, no matter how dumb or silly they might be. And I had people get back to me just with incredible information or other resources. Hey, here's an article about that. Read this. Here's a YouTube video. So those resources that I found through AOPA were amazing for kind of continuing my education as a pilot. Well, you know, we are so glad that you tipped your hat to AOPA and uh, talked a little bit about that, that There I Was podcast by Richard McSpadden. He's the host. It's just fantastic. And Richard has ties to UGA also, uh, just so you know. His, his folks um, are living in, in uh, Georgia, not far from Athens, actually. And, um, and Greg Brown, you brought that up, the Greg Brown's Flying Carpet blog. Um, we actually republished a lot of those, and his adventures are now um, put together as a podcast as well. Um, so, so, so folks could probably look at that as well. And um, there are great uh, one-on-one experiences that are shared with both of those um, experiences with Greg Brown or with the uh, There I Was podcast. Now, I hope I'm never in any of those situations myself, to be honest with you, but I have had an emergency engine out and I, I was able to get out of that one, but it's good experience. Um, those are two key things. We're glad AOPA was there for you. And we will still be there for you as you continue your your journey through the uh, instrument flying world and hopefully on to commercial and wh- wherever you're going to go. But uh, let's close with anything else that you want to talk about or, or tell us. We already talked about how to get other folks interested in aviation careers. If there's anything else in your mind, let me know. Yeah, you know, there's one more thing that I, I think I really wanted to highlight about the UGA Aviation Club. So, you know, I talked about going to that first meeting and being really impressed with the professionalism. The other thing that really impressed me was the makeup of the club. You know, my time spent in the aviation community, it's very much a male-dominated community. And when I did a little research before this chat, I found an AOPA article written by Ian Twomley, and some of the numbers are women make up only 7% of the certificated pilots, and it's even worse numbers for professional pilots. Well, I show up to this club meeting, it's about 50% women. And they're involved in some pretty serious ways. Uh, So the current vice president of PR, she was a recipient of the AOPA's You Can Fly High School Scholarship back in 2016. And she's actually in line to be the club's president next semester. And she's one of those interesting cases. She flies in the general aviation community, 
she's getting a bachelor's in uh, PR and she's lo looking to work in sports media. So she's, you know, going for more of a business career, but she's still really involved in the aviation community. And I think at a time when, you know, aviation and AOPA and all these different groups are doing so much to try and bring women into aviation, this club has already kind of solved that problem. And they're kind of ahead of the game on this one. You know, you brought up something really good. We'll close with, um, which is the AOPA scholarship program. You know, we gave away a million bucks worth of, uh, of flying scholarships last year and the year before. 80% of, of that approximately goes to students, another 20% to, to teachers and, or, or folks who are changing careers or getting another certificate or multi-engine or instrument. But that's a good point. Uh, someone who got the AOPA high school scholarship um, in 2016 it will, will hopefully soon be the UGA Aviation Club president, if that's what you said, if I heard that correctly. Yeah, she that's just won the election, so she's just waiting for next semester to kick off. She's currently a vice president, and she'll be leading the whole thing next semester. Wow, that is awesome. Well, let's just drop a name real quick. Tell us who it is. Uh, her name is Amelia Green. She's fantastic. Well, see if you could get Amelia Green to listen to the Hangar Talk podcast, Jason, and maybe she'll follow in your footsteps and we can chat with her a little bit later. But uh, listen, I appreciate your time so much. Tell us a little bit about military aviation, a little bit about your role at UGA, a little bit about your um, participation in the UGA Aviation Club and how to get other people involved in flying. It's so important. And also you said, you know, we just we're closing on the diversity aspect we got to get more young folks involved. we got to get more females. We have to get more racial diversity as well. And it sounds like the UGA Aviation Club is headed in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more, David. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Jason. And hopefully our paths will cross in future at an airport soon. Yeah, awesome. Hey, thanks again for having me, David. This was awesome. David, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, you know, we know that uh, jobs are still going gangbusters in the fixed wing community, but um, maybe not so much with the rotorcraft. It seems like you need a lot of experience and a lot of time to, to nail that job down in the rotorcraft world. But Jason seems to have a good handle on what he wants to do. And, you know, he talked a little bit about aviation management, that kind of thing. But I really enjoyed the fact that he brought us into the world of general aviation at the University of Georgia on the college campus. I think that's kind of cool. That club is a going places club. And we can take a, a, a lot of information from what he told us and, and kind of try to duplicate that feel elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening to the award-winning Hangar Talk podcast. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly. <laughs>